You're listening to Songstripper. Hello, I'm Tim Jackson. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, liking, rating and reviewing the show. Phil and I have been absolutely blown away by the positive response after a few episodes, and today's is a cracker too. But before we continue, if you'll indulge me for a few moments, during lockdown, and while recovering from COVID-19 myself, I wrote and recorded a new song called Nowhere Together With You. All proceeds are going to help the nurses, doctors and staff at the Whittington Hospital in North London. It's available on all streaming platforms now and for download. Here's a little clip, I hope you enjoy it, and then we'll get on with the show. Our song stripper guest on this episode wrote and sang one massive worldwide hit that lit up the 80s pop charts and is still played today. Tim and me are pleased, overjoyed, almost overwhelmed to welcome Clark Batchelor, writer and singer of the 80s standard Shattered Dreams. This one song started the career of his band Johnny Hates Jazz who continue to release albums and tour. Apart from writing all the songs for Johnny Hayes Jazz, Clark also writes for Mike and the Mechanics and in the past has written with Take That, but we won't discuss that in this episode. We're recording remotely with Clark speaking from sunny Surrey, Tim keeping it real in North London and me in the wild west of Suffolk with the occasional airplane flying over. Anyway, here we go. Hi, Tim. Hi, Clark. Hey, Phil. Hello, Tim. Hey, Phil. Hi, Clark. Thank you very much for joining us. It's much appreciated. Yeah, you're welcome. What a weird situation. Here we are in, in lockdown mode. I know. It's so tough for us all sitting in our home studios. I mean, uh, I don't know how we're going to survive. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So into the questions, Clark. Um, as we said in the intro, you often sing about social issues, but... The song we're going to talk about today, Shattered Dreams, is perhaps a straight-ahead heartbreak song. Is that a fair thing to say? Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that um, the social issue side of my own songwriting evolved kind of during my tenure, my first tenure with Johnny Hates Jazz. Um, and, uh, and it kind of snowballed from there. But Shattered Dreams was... You know, really, people often ask me what it was about if there was a particular incident in my life that I related to lyrically. And it's really hard to say the truth because there isn't. You know, it it was not in as much as there was a specific one, but but certainly we all experience shattered dreams in our lives, you know, in one way or another. You know, yeah. life 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 doesn't let us escape without going through some some knocks and bumps along the way so obviously i drew on that mm-hmm. but it but in a way it was um it wasn't it wasn't the most personal song in terms of experience it just seemed to somehow work lyrically with with Too the true. music yeah yeah um and uh, following on with the lyrics have the lyrics come to, come to have a different meaning over the years 
you know, sometimes when you subconsciously, you're not aware why, why you're writing those words. Mm. Uh, they just feel right in the song, as you were saying. And years later, sort of in a Freudian way, a light bulb goes off in your head and you go, oh, that's what it's about. Like, is maybe what I'm seeing is has Shattered Dreams now, does it have a social issue context to it all these years later? Do, do, is, is that, you know, like 15 years after it was released, did you go, that's what the song's about? Or Yeah, in a, in a way, Phil, in a way that's true. Really what I thought was this is how it could be applicable um, because obviously it's it's been a song that that has endured and a lot of people still enjoy. So they must have their own ways of relating to it. And and it's true that it's not always the same thing. It's often yeah. someone's gone through a breakup and, and that's affected them. Maybe someone's lost someone close to them. Yeah. Um, you know, someone's actually exactly. passed away. Yeah. So so those things are do happen. But I think for me, what I realize is that the notion of a shattered dream is is all around us you know that we see that in our world especially today yeah um you know we had one vision of what life was going to be like and then the covid-19 yeah. pandemic has happened and 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 that dream has just completely broken into a million pieces that's nicely i like the way you've contextualized that thank you and, and contextualize is a word I, I don't often use and also find hard to pronounce yeah. But I did I, it twice. I, I'm, I was actually uh, thinking, how do you spell that? And I don't even want to try. T H A T. Sorry. <laughs> so, Clark, talk us through how the song came to you. You'd had a few records released with no success with other bands and by yourself, and then suddenly, boom! It was an amalgamation of things, and, and, and some of it was circumstantial. And it's I ironic, Tim, excuse me, for just... You know, getting ultra personal with Phil now for a minute, but of oh, course, please do. <laughs> Phil, F Phil, you were of course the original singer and songwriter in Johnny Hates Jazz. Uh, yeah, when and, and when you say songwriter, that means one song. Yes, wrote, that's right. I wrote one song and then left. <laughs> yes, you did with Mike and and uh, Calvin Hayes, Cal who was the other member of Johnny Hates Jazz at the time, and Ian McDonald, if I'm if I'm correct, that's yeah, right. yeah, uh, which I never was met called. Him. Okay, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's called Me and My Foolish Heart. And the irony of, of Johnny Hayes Jatter's story is if, if Phil hadn't have left, I wouldn't yeah. have joined. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I've got to tell this story because it's a, it's a very honest um, situation that I faced. I'd been signed to Rack Records by, by Mickey Most. Um, for about four years as a solo artist. I joined as part of a band called Hot Club. But, but basically what happened was that after four years of not coming up with a single Smasheroonie for, uh, for Smash-driven Rack Records, um, Mickey had someone else take over the label, running the day-to-day -day, um, workings of it. I can't remember the guy's name. And um, he promptly, you know, sent me packing. So I literally remember walking... Yeah. I remember having this talk and, and Mickey very much stayed out of it because on, on a good day, I, I got on very well with Mickey. And um, I remember walking down the stairs out of the offices in Rack past Studio Two, and I could hear Mike and Calvin working on this track, no. and, which turned out to be Me and My Foolish Heart. Yeah. And 
I walked in, I said, because I'd work, I'd worked with both of them for on and off in yeah. different situations for years. I said, what, what are you working on? So they said, this is what it is. And you know, this is Phil singing and this is who wrote it and everything. I said, that sounds really interesting. And they said, yeah, yeah Phil, Phil's not sure if he can do it. He's got, you yeah. know, he's got, he's got other things on the go yeah. and it, it's debatable. And I said, well, look, um, let me know if you need a singer. I, 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 I'd rarely sung other people's stuff. How about that? So it was a bit of a weird one, but I really loved it. So yeah. I, I left um, quite dejected that I, you know, I'd lost my contract. And six weeks later, I was back <laughs> singing, <laughs> singing Me and My Foolish Heart. And the guy who had taken over, Rack, uh, when he saw me walk through the door of the studio, he just said, well... I didn't expect you back that quickly, <laughs> to which I smirked, yeah. you know, and probably winked at yeah. him or something, maybe punched yeah. him on the shoulder playfully. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so I ended up singing Me and My Foolish Heart, copying your vocal fill down oh. to a T. That's what Mike and Calvin want me to do. So yeah. that was really interesting. And yeah. so I then, you know, Me and My Foolish Heart came out and it got, a, it got great reviews. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a commercial success, but certainly put Johnny Ace Jazz on the map. So I went away and thought, well, you know, this is my chance to maybe have some input. So I had Me and My Foolish Heart as a, as a sonic hint. Mm -hmm. But what I was listening to at the time Worse was well, loads of things, but in particular, I I love this is not America, David Bowie and Pat Metheny. I love that too. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I thought it was a great record. And yeah. interestingly, interestingly, it it was very pad driven. You know, the yeah. song was basically pads. I don't remember there being a piano or a keyboard yeah. or anything like that. You know, Pat Metheny was banging away on something. I don't know what it was. And yeah. and um. And Bowie was doing his thing. I loved that record. And I also loved Silent Running by Mike and the Mechanics. Right. So I kind of brought my leaning towards that music together with Foolish Heart. And it sounds like I somehow contrived Shattered Dreams. I didn't. I, I No, just, it doesn't sound contrived at all. It doesn't sound contrived it, at all. It, you know how it is as yeah. writers. Yeah. You know, the, these things kind of seep into your subconsciousness and then something that often is totally different comes out in in the yeah. case of shattered dreams i think there is a relationship with those three records and right. and um i think that i probably came up with the chorus first um and i was playing it in this very room this is this room i'm in is my huh? the the kind of the garden room of my parents house where i grew up and i'm looking at the piano actually where i wrote Shattered Dreams is just over there, what? a Kemble upright. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was writing, I'd written in this room for just years and my parents were just probably a bit fed up with me banging on about, you know, this new song and that new song. But um, I was working on Shattered Dreams and my dad came in through the door. And we should mention your dad was a professional musician. Professional jazz musician, yeah. So very yeah. influential on in my life. He came in and said, uh, what's that you're working on? And I said, it's, yeah. it's called Shattered Dreams. And he went quiet and looked at me quite sternly and saying, I think you've written your first hit. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, at the age of, of what I was back then, probably 21, 22, um, yeah. that was a huge, you, you need, I certainly needed that level of confidence. I needed someone yeah. to say, you're on the right track here. Just give us a little insight. Uh, so your dad 
professional musician. Uh, remind me of his name. He was a singer too, right? His name was Fred Datchler. And um, my dad was in two bands. The first was called the Stargazers. And the Stargazers were a a kind of a show band, really. My dad never rated them at all. He felt slightly embarrassed that he was part of them, but they were massively successful. They had their own radio show on BBC and they were the first British band to have a number one hit on the UK chart, um, which was a year after it launched because up until then it had only been US artists. Was was this around the time of like uh, Marty Wilde or before... Bit before, I mean, a little bit before Marty Wilde, probably. He was late fifties or early sixties. Yeah, I, w- I would have thought Marty would have been yeah late fifty eight onwards. Well, I don't know that for a fact, but yeah, yeah. they yeah. this would have been probably more early fifties to mid fifties. Yeah. Um, and um, and yeah. my dad then left the Stargazers, took a massive pay cut because they they'd been very successful. Joined a band called the Polka Dots. Yeah. And the Polka Dots were a close harmony. They had a spotty career. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) I actually have never heard that. It's fantastic. Um, Uh, I hope I never hear it again. Um, Sorry. Sorry. uh, Edit. (laughs) And uh, the Polka Dots were uh, really, really, really good. Am I allowed to swear on this? Or do you just say this? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We we actually encouraged that. We got, uh, I think we had uh, Graham Goldman as, I think he was swearing on on one episode. We encourage swearing. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. the polka dots were buggeringly good. Right. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they were great. And the polka dots did, had their own records, but they also sang backing vocals for Sinatra, for, the, for wow. um, Ella Fitzgerald, for Petula Clark. Wow. They were regulars on the Goon Show. But the biggest thing for me, and my dad didn't tell me this till later in life, was that they sung on two of the Beatles singles. They sang on I Am The Walrus and The Long and Winding Road. Huh. Wow. And I, I said, Dad, why didn't you tell me? And he kind of yeah. shrugged and said, I didn't think it was very interesting. <laughs> this is one of, one of our many dialogues about were the yeah. Beatles shit or not. You know? yeah, yeah. And as a jazzer, he, he tended to think they were, they were shit. And as a uh-huh. young, young popster as I was, I thought they were gods. So, um, yeah. so. Yes, so his career was really influential for me because, of course, I grew up listening to jazz as a kid throughout the house. Yes, and the irony, of course, ending up in a band uh, called Johnny Hayes Jazz. It is, yeah, uh, very ironic, yeah. um, Now, did you have a feeling, obviously your dad uh, recognised something in the song. Did you, were you writing it thinking, hang on, this is feeling pretty good? I did. I did think it was feeling pretty good. but I'd felt that way before, and that was just, you yeah. know, <laughs> youthful zeal. <laughs> I think all songwriters, don't you think every song you write, you go, yeah, I've done it again. I really have. <laughs> and, and it's then... always the newest one, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's always yeah, the newest course. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, when you played it to um, – actually, there's a little bit of context, context here. The, so much of uh, my career and Clark's career um, – started around uh, Rack Studios in St. John's Wood, um, where Mickey Most was a mentor, certainly to me, and to, uh, as an engineer, producer, and to Clark as a writer. Um, but also in that building was uh, Mickey Most's son, Calvin Hayes, uh, who was a A&R man stroke producer, and also Mike Nacito, who 
and the pair of them um, joined um, Clark in Johnny Hates Jazz. Now, when you played uh, your band members that song, great feedback, a shake of the head. Um, what, what else have you got? What What was the reception? Um, they were. They both went quiet. And one of them, I don't remember which one, nodded profusely, looked at the other, and the other sort of looked at, probably Calvin, who looked at Mike, Mike looked at Calvin and said, um, that's really good. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. And so I yeah. chirped in saying, well, my dad thinks it's going to be a hit. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and they, they, they were very enthusiastic about no, Shattered Dreams very quickly. I'm sure when when you said, uh, yeah, my dad thinks it's a hit, it, it sealed the deal. It was <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. It was probably yeah. not the thing to say. They didn't know much about my dad at that time either. But yeah, right. um, uh, So we have it on good information from someone, inverted commas, within the organization that the song was demoed three times. And by the, by the last version, you, you had it so figured out that it actually didn't, for a Johnny Hayes jazz record it took about three and a half days to record um yeah well um the person who told you obviously shall remain nameless for matters of national security but um mike mike, mike remembers it very well <laughs> <laughs> sorry i spoiled your gag no sorry. i did didn't i no it's it it yeah. you know synchronicity though yeah. um yeah yeah mike is right there i used to demo everything on a four track porter studio tascan porter oh, studio yeah so uh, all all the early Johnny H. Jazz songs that I wrote were in Porter Studio form, and they were mapped out quite clearly. Doesn't mean they were always right, yeah. But but a lot of the essence of the parts were there. So Shattered Dreams was a case of we had that, then we did a demo which was ostensibly for um, uh, trying to get a deal. Yeah, Hawking. Yeah. And then we eventually, you know, did a couple of recordings, the, the, the last of which ended up being the single. Mm. And it did take a bit of refinement. It was like 95% there, and then we, we got it. Mm. Mike uh, actually said he felt like the moment where it really turned round was originally there was a, pul a very 80s kind of pulsing bass yeah. um, playing eights through the song. And that at, at four o'clock in the morning... Um, in the studio where, where you shouldn't have been, you weren't supposed to have been in, um, the penny dropped and you finally came up with a far groovier, well, yeah, a far groovier bass line. Is, is that fair? It's a really simple bass line. You know, it's dum 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 I can't remember. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. It yeah. was very, very simple. And, and that was staring us right in the face the whole time. It, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, eight's pulse on a bass was just so prevalent then. Mm. Yeah. And it was the default thing to do to get just as, you know, four on the floor now for if you want to make anyone yeah. move, that's what you've been doing that for the past 20 years, you know. But um, so I generally played bass on on a on an OBXA. Um, yes. And as Phil, you know the OBXA very well, of yeah. course, because it yeah. was uh, lived at Rack. And um yeah. And so uh, that was a good kind of education with Shattered Dreams because I realized that that was a, a bit of a thing for me, working out bass parts. And often, yeah. you know, you needed to find something that really supported the song. Back then, I really didn't have that notion. It was just chuck on a bass and, yes. and that'll do. 
instead yeah. of thinking what is really going to let the song breathe. So that was yeah. uh, that was a moment. Yeah. It's interesting, the first thing you do, I mean, OBXA, just for our listeners, is a, an Oberheim, I presume, is that right? A keyboard. Yeah. So yes. behind that, was, it, was that naturally the first thing you would do? Because, I mean, nowadays, presumably, people are writing songs in bands. They would probably still gravitate towards the acoustic instruments or, you know, string instruments, pianos, guitars. And then it might get moved on to synths later. But are you immediately thinking of synths when you're writing it? Yeah, because this was also a bit of a thing about the 1980s, obviously, mm. it was the advent really of synth-based bands. And in retrospect, I now describe Johnny Hayes Jazz as the last electronic band of the decade yeah. because what was happening at the same time as us and came after us in the 80s was, was really very, very different. But we had a foot very firmly in what happened in the earlier 80s yes. and other things as well. Of course. So it was absolutely natural to... Um, to reach for what what I had back then at home was a Casio CZ one thousand. Right. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Ow! And, <laughs> and the fact is, it's so funny with the kids back then. You know, Casio were not exactly the the most pro name no. in the market yeah. when it came to keyboards. But now, um, Arturia have done a within their V collection have done a, a modelling of the CZ series, and it's now given this hallowed introduction. Yeah. Um, when when it was simply, uh, I think if the Casio keyboards could be put in the in the bracket of affordable, exactly. Yeah, well, they were one up from Bon Tempe, weren't they? I mean, Bon Tempe was That's a boxer. Right. It was yeah. Casio, yeah. I think. Yeah. It was. You know, the irony is, is that whereas Bon Tempe have yet to be modelled by Arturia, yes. um, <laughs> uh, wow. the, the CZ actually yeah. is a kind of a very quirky keyboard, and right. it's all over that first Johnny Ace jazz album. Huh. So, so are you saying Shattered Dreams, all the pads and the, the, the other counterpoint uh, synth melodies, that, that, that's the Casio? The counterpoint synth melodies are, and the main chords are held by the Casio instead of Ooh. what we would, would end up doing, which will be a Whirly or a Rhodes. Um, yeah. And the pads were actually a combination of the Oberheim OBXA and the um, Roland Jupiter 8. That was the... Yeah. That was the, yeah. the main combination and, and sometimes a, a profit. Well, whilst I was looking at um, uh, the forums about Shattered Dreams, do, doing a little research for the questions, mm. so many you, people could just go crazy talking. You'd be, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, talking about the keyboards used on the record. And they go, oh, the people very, very, um, you know, assuredly saying, mm. oh, that's a DX7, that's a DX7, <laughs> this is a D50 patch. <laughs> and I'm going... Well, I know they had the Oberheim and the, the Clark had a thing about Casio, but um, yeah, it just goes to show history is, um, yeah, who, 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 I'm glad. So we're really clearing up history, uh, the history of synth pop yes. was all about a, a Casio. Anyway, back to the song <laughs> and, your, and your songwriting. So any sec secret techniques as a writer that you often refer to, the range of the melody, how quickly the hook comes... I would say personally, I don't know about you, Tim, but I get disillusioned if I look when I'm writing a song or demoing a song and I look at the, the timing on it and uh, it, you're arriving at the second chorus and it says two minutes. I'm like, whoa, no, that's, this is wrong. <laughs> but if the song is finished after two and a half minutes, uh, then I'm convinced I'm a genius right. because you've kind of, I must have crystallized my genius into two and a half minutes. Any tips for 
That's brilliant. Well, Phil, having worked with you recently on on our new stuff, and let me say, Tim, and for all the listeners out there, what a brilliant experience it was. It was absolutely great working with it Phil It was good and fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really good, good fun. fun. Yeah. Great result as well. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of not surprised because you, you mentioned that a few times about, you know, that, that is a, it's a bit of a magic moment when you, you complete a song and it really sounds complete and then you look at how long it is and it's, it's under three minutes. Mm. It's a bit of a miracle. <clears throat> Yeah. And I struggled with that no end in, and I still do. I still tend to write songs that are a little bit too long for, yeah, for radio. I think we all do. I think my, I mean, my favourite songs that I've ever written for myself have come in literally at three minutes. And I was inspired oh, about I don't know seven or eight years ago. I put the radio on at two in the morning, having driven back from somewhere, and they were playing "Still Crazy" after all these years by Paul Simon, which is just an amazing song. Loads of different bits going oh. on, and it clocks in about three minutes and three seconds. And you think, how has oh, he got yeah, all, that, all that in? And there's so yeah. much going on. Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, to the listener, it's a simple melody, but the amount of technique going into that and the chords and the progressions, it's phenomenal. He's got a massive sax solo and a different key in the middle of it as well. And you think, well, if, if he could do it, you know, that's, that's, that's what you've got to aim for. And I completely agree. And I, well, I, and the, it, the, it's good reason to be inspired by that because you're right, it's one of those songs that, you know, I, I listen to and I get a question mark above my mm. head. You think, how did you do that? Yeah. What a great songwriter! What a ridiculous oh, songwriter, Paul no. Simon. I mean, actually, not one, to take a tangent, but there is a there's a video clip of him on YouTube on I think Johnny Carson or one of those shows in the seventies, and he's actually talking about how he's trying to write Michael Parkinson talking about how he's writing that song and he's been struggling with it for over a year, and he literally plays the first verse and the line still crazy after all these years, and he goes, "I don't know where I'm going to go next with it," and that's interesting. <laughs> so it took <laughs> him forever brilliant. to write it. Yeah. Yeah. How brilliant. Yeah. So um, Shattered Dreams, the song itself has, the middle section is definitely a modulation. It goes, the whole song goes into a different key. And I think it goes up half a step. But there's a very subtle modulation on what I would call the B section where you sing, I thought it was you. Most of the song is in D minor. There's, there's a basic uh, kind of D minor feel, the same feel for the... Um, Verse in the chorus, but the B section mm. actually goes into the key of C. It kind of, it just goes off to this other little magical place, and it's so simple. Maybe it's the way Bill Simon can make things appear simple, but it go when it goes to that B section, and then it comes back to the darkness of uh, of, uh, of the hook. I just think there's a little bit of magic songwriting there. I mean, of course, the song is a hit song and full of hooks and melody, but to me. I think that's the key to the yeah. song. I mean, did that occur to you that you were actually kind of going into another key for four bars and then? Four? Not well, not really. But but it's it's wonderful hearing from and talking with songwriters, fellow songwriters, about this because you're you're really going to the crux of something, and that is how do you set up the chorus? Mm -hmm. And and for me, the B section or bridge is as you know, it's not so different, is it, um, as terminology? But but the bridge is uh, is fundamentally important, and I think it can make or break what happens next. You can have this supposedly great chorus, and everyone can go around saying, "Oh, what a great chorus that is!" But how you hear it is dependent upon what what comes before it. Yep. It's all about context. If yeah. you can't, a, a hit song is a hit song because the verse works, yep. the bridge works, the chorus works, everything, and it gets you all in the first minute. Absolutely. But, but that B section is so fresh. The first, the, the, when it hits, I thought it was you. 
and it goes from a C to um, a G with a substitution. Mm-hmm. And it's a very short. That's very good. No, very good. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it does that, and then and then you hit the hook. And so there's that section, mm. which I really uh, have. It always mystified me until mm. I actually sat down at the piano. Um, in fact, uh, a few days ago, and uh, played through it. And something else I noticed because the melody getting kind of technical again is. Um, you know what uh, we we would call a pentatonic melody it's a blues it's a five note melody so on that section when it goes into c you hit an e we're sort of going up a c scale isn't it i thought i was i thought it was you is thought it was is c d e the notes so it was going up going yeah. up a major scale we, and the chorus and the verse are very much as you say pentatonic blues style well that the, it's all a question of influence isn't it it, you know, it, how how you get there, if I, I was listening to anything from Thompson Twins to Steely Dan, <laughs> and perhaps that wasn't something that was so common in the Thompson Twins, but Steely Dan did yeah. that to the nth degree. I mean, mm. that was simplistic well, maybe, maybe, for them. It's easy to be, it's just very easy to be predictable and you, if you stay in the same chordal yeah. realm. On the other hand, if you go too far, um, I know this is a bit of a, flippant thing to say but it becomes a bit jazz and although i loved steely dan i you know there was a line you know i drew a line (laughs) yeah they crossed it occasionally (laughs) yeah exactly i mean you know scritti politti or um phil again referencing what you did with prefab sprout you know though there were lots of bands at that time level 42 or one actually that Mm -hmm. that used chords in a very very interesting way in in a way actually that i think from a lot of chart music has has gone AWOL or certainly did for a while. Well, it's um, on the a, AWOL at the moment. It's yeah. uh, n- no, I, I don't, I don't think an A and R department could actually handle more than uh, one key and four chords at the moment. Uh, right. It, it's uh, no. it's immediately get out the red pen the moment a fifth chord or a sixth chord appears and go. Now that's not quite working for us. Which is fair enough. Just talking about great bridges, actually, of the similar time to you. I'm thinking it's my life. Talk, talk as well. Oh, I mean, that's got a great yeah. modulation in it. And again, complex, but a very simple melody that everyone sort of sings along to. It's almost like a chart, you know, yeah. the chorus. But it's that brilliant... is, that's really well pointed out, Tim, actually. You've picked on one of my favourite records of that mm. time. It is mm. brilliant it's when phenomenal. it modulates. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's a fan. And it really does. You think, where on earth have you gone? Yeah. And how on yeah. earth do you get back yes. there? So, you I know. Think, yeah. I think it was an enharmonic modulation if we were being... Uh, but oh, is that talk so? us through that. I'm Tim. not going to talk you yeah, through please. that, but it's basically using uh, when, for example, a D flat, sorry, a D, uh, an E flat would become a D sharp in the next bar, if that makes sense. But the same note, but you're using it in different contexts as it changes key. But, oh yeah, yeah, yes. But that's kind yeah, of what they're doing. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now on uh, Shattered Dreams, when it hits the uh, what I would call the bridge, the mm. same kind of thing happens. It's just all hell breaks loose. There's a bongo solo. <laughs> who the hell wants who yeah whoever said we gotta have a bongo solo on this song guys i i said it from the very beginning i said <laughs> we're only going to do this record if we have a bongo solo, <laughs> and if you don't like it i'm walking now uh, yeah. no it was a, the 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 solo was a real struggle real struggle i i i actually had my dad play sax on it at one point 
the sax solo. It just it didn't work. And he did, it, my dad did famously on it, but it just wasn't right for the track. But the, cor- the chords were the same. The, the, the key change from, you know, it's just like you said, Phil, it's a half step, only, you know, to E yeah. flat minor. We really just couldn't figure it out. And it was a real pain in the ass. And then uh, Frank Ricotti came in, who played percussion throughout the album. And, um, and uh, we, we gave him free reign. And, yeah. uh, and he just started playing some interesting yeah. stuff, some great stuff in what became the solo. And uh, it, it was always a bit of a pain in the backside, though, when, when we promoted that record. Because if you didn't have someone, you know, on stage with you who was miming oh. the, 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 the bongos or congas, you know, you, um, someone had to just bang on something. And that often fell to Calvin to just, you know, bang away on the keyboard yeah. in a way that was, was passable. Going back to um, uh, the record, something I wanted to um, pick up on was after the chorus, you sing a, an ad lib, no, no, no. You sing, <laughs> they're, they're the words that you're saying. No, I'm saying. And yet the chorus, it seems sort of counterintuitive to what, to what the chorus lyric has, to, has been saying. And I just imagine the no, no, no just felt very nice just as an oh ad-lib. yeah absolutely yeah. i look i was um i had recorded a lot by then you know i had my first single out when i was 17 and on nice. another label you know i'd done a lot of recording but i was still very shy uh, and hmm. if if anyone ever bothers to look at the very first performance of shattered dreams on top of the pops you'll see i was really nervous so mm-hmm. even in the studio i kind of ad-libbing in front of people. I'd worked a lot with Mike, so I could do it in front of Mike, but Mike and Calvin at the same time, I had, I had my inhibitions. So I think that was about, you know, was way out as I felt I could get. I mean, you'll listen to the new stuff. Phil, you know yeah. this all too well because yeah. you recorded a lot, of, a lot of the times I did vocals, and it's, I find it much easier now. I don't really have inhibitions yeah. in the same way, but... We can't, we can't stop you ad-libbing now. No, that's the problem, it's, isn't it? It's like, like, will Mike, you sing Mike that McDonald. fucking song? Michael McDonald, exactly. That brings to mind um, a favourite line of mine by the lyricist Don Black, who says, mm. I like to rehearse my ad-libs. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> oh, you know what? In Johnny H. Jazz, that happened. In Johnny H. Jazz, everything got rehearsed in the early days. Right. It was quite yeah. frustrating because I actually just wanted to do ad-libs. But I think what happened was that Mike would hear certain ad-libs and go, let's do that over and over again and get it really yeah. good. And it worked. It did work. Um, but um, uh, no, I was not conscious of how it related to the, the lyric. I think that yeah. um, we had a... We had an assistant engineer at that time who you will know very well, Phil. Um, this guy called Roy Spong. Oh, and yeah. Roy would, every time he saw me after we did Shattered Dreams, he didn't say hello. He just went, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't move. Yeah. He took the piss out of me so much for doing that, and uh, rightly so as well. But, yeah, yeah it just it, it, it felt good, exactly. sounded good. Um, and and uh, that ad lib also reminds, well, not not musically, but uh, there's the Charles and Eddie hit, which is uh, goes, Would I lie to you? Would I? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> the yeah. ad lib is, is kind of oh yeah like <laughs> yes. yeah I would lie to you but that's not really what you want to hear you want to go oh no it's I'm true actually, I'm a good person I wouldn't lie to you <laughs> oh yeah that brings uh, me nicely to uh, Mickey Most the late Mickey Most who who was a uh, record producer and and an empresario really uh, in the through the sixties and seventies and eighties and had uh, massive hits with Hot Chocolate and uh, Kim Wilde and The Animals and on and on and on, Golden Ears. So um, and he was a mentor for me, and uh, I know he was a mentor for Clark, and he had this incredible ability to spot a hit, and yet, uh, and I know he loved the quality of your voice, but how, so how come someone like Mickey with, not literally golden ears, but with the ability to spot hit records. How did he miss Shattered Dreams? I don't know. It's a really weird one um, because that is what happened. Mickey was mm. incredibly supportive of me throughout the yeah. years I was a solo artist on Rack. Gave me so much downtime. This is what you relied mm. upon in studios back then. If you couldn't afford to rent the studio, you would look for downtime where you would have some kind of connection with someone in the studio where you could basically have free time and usually that was at night but mickey was really good with me gave me mm. lots of time and um and was always very supportive but when he heard shattered dreams he said if that record is a hit i will stand naked in selfridge's shop window all day <laughs> i and, don't believe it he really was wow. yeah it really adamant yeah. and yeah. In some ways, I think there was a, a very childish attitude amongst the three of us. But Calvin, we should add, um, the third member of Johnny H. Jazz back then, was Mickey's son. So they, mm. they had their own dynamic, mm. which was beyond yes. me, beyond Mike. It was their own thing. So the idea, I think, of, of proving ourselves in our different ways was, was possibly even more true for Calvin. So... There was a sense that we would try and prove him wrong, mm. um, but not with any sense of malice, certainly not on, no, no, no. on anyone's part. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that when it was a success, Mickey was, along with my own dad, our biggest supporter. I mean, he was wow. so happy for us. And I'm yeah. trying to think if he actually explained it away, you know, why he didn't hear it. But I think also... This was a time when Mickey's star was beginning to ebb a little bit and he wasn't hearing what was happening at that time as clearly as he did in the earlier 80s and the 70s and the 60s where he was yeah. just always on the money. So I think I, he I, was just a bit mystified as to what was going on then. Yeah, I, I really felt as I saw Mickey when he, he was still making big hits for hot chocolate and he was a phenomenon it, it, not only in the way he produced records but the way he could spot songs and um i don't know so much um he he did some business things and um basically sold the label and i kind of feel he, he lost his i don't think he lost his ability he just lost his mojo um he he's mm. he what his finger wasn't on the pulse anymore and um so he was instead of kind of leading things spotting hits he was reacting to things, and and um, yeah, yeah, but you're right when you say it was a, it it was a it was a strange dynamic. Also, because you were very much of Rack Records, Mike and Calvin, Calvin's dad is running Rack Records, 
And Mike is an employee of Rack Records, and mm. Rack Records owned the studio and the publishing company. It was all in one building in um, Chalbert Street, St. John's Wood, if you want to go there. It, uh, it's a, <laughs> you can you can actually take in Abbey Road because it's only like half a mile away. But, um, yeah. but it's, it's uh, the source it was, was Apprentice, though, isn't it? It's, you know, you've got... It's the young, the young ones trying to prove the uh, the master correct. Oh, sorry, the master wrong. And uh, you can I mean, the dynamics very clear to me. With regardless of the song, I can exactly see the picture you're describing now. With anyone, yeah. you know, it's, a, yeah. it's your school teacher, it's your dad, it's your whoever it needs to be. Sort of saying, well, I know better than you, Sonny Boy. You know, it doesn't matter that the song yeah. could be any song. No, yeah, it's a really yeah. good point. And uh, but the irony of it was was that I wouldn't have written Shattered Dreams without the years that that mm. Mickey. Um, yeah. apprenticed me without a doubt, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And 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 his way of imparting knowledge was in some ways it, it could be perceived as being quite simplistic, and but I think that was more he chose he chose his words well. I don't know if you feel this, Phil, but he certainly chose his well his words well for me. He knew right. that he had to get through to me, being a young person who probably thought I knew better all the time. I don't know. I just think, yeah, for example, he would say with a chorus, this is in my earlier days at Rack, uh, he'd say, it's always good if the melody goes up in a chorus. And what a s simple thing to say. And I look back and I think, bless you, Mickey, you were being really <laughs> gentle with me then <laughs> instead, instead of saying, what kind of a shit chorus is that? Yeah. He, he just gave me those little gentle nudges. And although you could argue, of course, now, well, that's not always the case, but it was what I needed to hear back then. Yeah. It's definitely, I, I, I really kick against that. It, the song must go up. On Diane Warren's fantastic songs, it always goes up. Hmm. But there are... Uh, many many songs that actually go go down in the chorus mm. greg alexander with the new radicals and their big hit you get what you give mm. it, it wasn't until he explained this to me one day he said uh his co-writer rick knowles was kind of mad at greg because he says the chorus is the same melody as the verse <laughs> and it's not until you stop and go age 14 i got the dreamer's disease the verse gets mm. to the chorus don't give up your monomero dude. It's it's the same thing. Uh, yeah. The chords change un underneath it, and uh, and again, uh, with your song, um, a terrific re uh, B section that uh, when the night is falling, oh, yeah. you can't stop by the night. I mean, if that's not an uplifting moment, yeah. crikey! Anyway, this again is kind of strangely brings me back to. Um, uh, your your career clock because Greg uh, and the New Radicals he famously split it up when reached the height of his fame he said I don't want to do this mm. and um, I don't know if it's difficult for you to talk about but you did the same thing the record was flying high across the world especially in America and everybody knows how hard it is to have a hit in America mm. and uh, and yet you decided that you, you didn't feel good about things. Yeah, I, it was a it was a very odd time, and and as a, an older guy looking back now, I I think I would advise my younger self very differently. Were you upset? Were you disillusioned? Um, what, what do you what, what do you think it was? I think that uh, I think there were several things coming together at once. One of them was that I didn't have much patience. At that time, 
I wanted to do my own thing and I wanted to say what I wanted to say. And I certainly wanted to be much more socially conscious lyrically. But you did, you did, I don't want to be a hero. It's terrifically conscious. Yeah. I, I know, think so- I probably, I, again, I think I probably, I built a wall in my mind around the yeah. idea that I could do that when right. no one actually, no one else built that wall. I think if I presented yeah. Mike and Calvin with some songs, a few of which had something to say, they probably would have, as long as they liked the songs, it would have been yeah. fine. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I think it was also that it had something to do with how Johnny Hayes Jazz was presented to the world. Nothing to do with myself, Mike and Calvin, because we didn't encourage this. And we were signed to Virgin at the time, Virgin Records. And in some ways, looking back, you have to say, well, Virgin did, did us proud because we had this, this big success. Um, but he, yeah. here's, here's my argument. We weren't seen by the public until we were on Top of the Pops and we were in the top 20 at that point. No one had seen us. So the record was doing it on the strength of the record, not on what any one of us looked like or dressed like or whatever. So Virgin were an odd label in as much as we were, we felt very unwelcome on that label. And, and they had other bands that they, they, they preferred in general, far more than Johnny H. Jazz. And I think to some of the, the big knobs at Virgin, it was a bit of an embarrassment that, that we were being, yeah. beginning to get all this attention. But our A&R man, John Wooler, was an exception, a wonderful exception, as was Caroline True, who was in the video department at that time. She went on to work very closely with George Michael. Um, yeah. And uh, Caroline really got us signed to Virgin. Um, yeah. So... So it wasn't this story where, you know, Virgin found us and picked us up and, yeah, we're, these guys have really got it. It was like, please, please sign these guys, someone. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think when, when finally it started to happen, they didn't have a clear picture of what we were. Perhaps we didn't either. Yeah. So they went the, the easy route, and the easy route was put them on smash hits with, which was the big teenage magazine of the time or number one. There were, it was this whole kind of world that exists online now, but mm. back then it was in more in magazine form and chased down a teenage audience. And although there's nothing wrong with that, if you only do that, you do pigeonhole your, yourselves mm. pretty quickly. And I have to say, I was very affected by how, the uh, serious music critics, in quotes, um, treated us as a result. They, they didn't treat us that way beforehand, but they did as soon as that decision was made to send us down that promotional path. Yeah, but the, critic, the critics are often years behind the artists, I mean, or behind the public. Very often you'll get a massive hit, a number one or a number of whatever, a top 10 hit. The public love it. The critics disparage it. And 10 years later going, of course, that was always a great song. It's like, well... At the time, yeah. you slagged it off because you were too worried about the image or whatever you... And yeah. critics are supposed to be able to take the music on its face value, but they never do. They listen to the... They're, they're much more concerned with the image around the band. And if, you know, on, on the same token, a, 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 a cool band can release a load of crap and the critics will say it's great because that's the default position. And then, you know, a few years Tim, later... Tim, that, so, that is so true. I was a... When I was younger... I, I'd, you know, I was very diverse in my taste, mm. but one of the bands that I loved was ABBA. 
Right. And you couldn't tell your yeah. peers that you were into ABRA at that time. <laughs> no, you would have been ridiculed. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah. of course, it's, oh, what great songwriters. Yeah, Benny and Beyond was just, you know, cut them. They were Lennon and McCartney of Scandinavia, basically. And yeah. you just think, God, it took you, or it took you fucking Mamma Mia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some wanky stage presentation of of yeah. the ABBA music for, for someone it's, to it's get their head It's a lot of fun, guys. It still oh, happens. Yeah. I mean, what's mad is, I won't name names, but it was, a very, it was a very, very famous film critic who was interviewing someone recently and they were talking about, they put a song on on the film and he goes, great film, but they ruined it with that song. And this, what a crap song. And I was thinking, what song are they talking about? And they go, oh, it must have been Love, Roxette. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's like one of the classic yeah. songs in the late 80s, early 90s, whatever it was. Uh, yeah, saying, yeah. it's literally the perfect song <laughs> the guy's still slanging it yeah. off 30 years later now going back to promo um tim and i have to mention the video directed by david fincher who would go on to make hollywood hits big hit films such as seven fight club many others still working so talk us through how you helped him get started and what influence uh, your uh, songs have had on his films since <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say, had he not directed that video, yeah. um, I, you know, uh, the the thing about working with David Fincher was that he was presented to us as being this, you know, up and coming video maker, a bit of a wannabe filmmaker. He'd done um, Englishman in New York for Sting, uh, which was very impressive. Black and white, wasn't it? Yeah, Great. Yeah, 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 really good. Um, and uh, it, back then, it was a it was a big thing for a British act to break the U.S. It was it it was really the the target you were aiming for beyond your own uh, locale yeah. because if you did it in the states, you did it all over the world. And 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 Britain produced a great many acts back then. It was you know it was our second biggest export music uh, in wow. the 80s. So we had an enormous amount of success in the U.S. Um, and so the idea of going over there to do a video, I mean, everyone does videos in the States now. You're just bored, isn't it? You know, someone wandering about aimlessly in the desert, you know, with wearing yeah. barely nothing, you know, rambling on about something or other. It's common now, but, uh, back then it was getting more common, but the idea of going over there and doing it with a bona fide film director was very appealing, especially to Mike who is yes. a great film goer. I mean, he's a bit of yeah. a movie critic himself. Yeah. So we, we were very excited by the idea. And the great thing about um, David Fincher was that he, was, he knew he was good. And usually ah. I would dislike that in a person if they were, you know, really? if they yeah. were lacking in any kind of humility. Um, but, but David really put us at our ease by explaining to us that he knew exactly what he was doing. How brilliant. And with yeah. the video, we'd already done a video for Shattered Dreams in the UK, which was just shit. <laughs> and uh, I remember when we did it, you know, what happened back then, I don't know if it still happens now, but you get, you were given a synopsis of a video and it would always sound just amazing. You're thinking, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to look great on this video. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you end up doing it. And I remember we sat in a, the video department at Virgin to watch the oh. original video back and we just were silent afterwards. I looked at the other two and Calvin said, that wasn't very good, was it? You know, whispered uh. to me and I said, oh, it's bloody awful. So yeah. we, we were glad we had the chance to make a, a video that fit the song better. And, um, 
And the fact that it was black and white, as you were saying, Tim, you know, mm. it's a bit of a strength of Fincher. And um, yeah, I said to David recently, I sent him a tweet. I said, <laughs> David, you really should do more black and white. I think your films do yeah. better, mate, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a real, a, a magic moment to now be able to say to people, we did a couple of videos with David Fincher and they would kind of look at us incredulous and say, what? Yeah. One thing I actually yeah. want to ask you is, I think if you'd carried on at the peak of your success for longer and just mm. carried on rolling through and writing more hits, how do you think the band would have been remembered? Sort of what's because we were discussing how you were on smash hits and how Virgin mm. didn't think you were cool, but do you think you would have evolved into more of a sort of like a Tears for Fears style kind of reputation behind you musically? Uh, I think it's possible. And the reason I say possible, and instead of just saying yes, that yes, would have yeah. been our path, it, it, it we have to remember that that we were pigeonholed so heavily right. that I thought it was dangerous for me. I thought I'd never escape this unless I jumped ship, which is what wow. I did. Yeah. So, and it's a heavy thing to do when you've sure. got you know you were we were number two in the U.S. at that time in Shattered yeah. Dreams. Um, so I do often wonder what would have happened if. And I think we were at an interesting phase because it was the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s. Music was undergoing a sea change. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, acid jazz was taking off. and The, the Manchester scene was... was exactly. Very, very big club, the kind of second summer of love, everyone yeah. taking ecstasy. I, I never took it. I never took it. <laughs> I, took, I took aspirin. Um, yeah. I felt I felt I felt much better Sorry, after similar, it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but um, I, I think that there's every chance we would have been remembered in 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 a very positive way. I yeah. uh, Tears for Fears were my favourite band of the eighties, and, sure. and I often thought we we could have reached for that. But and I think musically between the three of us, we were capable of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, so agree. I, I can but hear I similarities. Think, I mean, for me, I got into Tears for Fears. Well. I was only, I was born in 77, so I sort of got into Tears of Fears at the age of 9, 10, 11, as opposed to when they first started having hits and mm. sowing the seeds of love and all that. It's just, I mean, they evolved quite well with the times because they're going back to live drumming there, I suppose, from the, from the, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the programming on that album. But it was some phenomenal mm. stuff. And I can sort of certainly see how you could have evolved into something similar, potentially. I, I think, Tim, that um, if we had started in the earlier 80s, mm. It's impossible to say. No, this. Would Shattered Dreams have been a her earlier on? We don't know. But no. if we had, I think it would have been an easier run for us. We wouldn't have faced the pressures of the collapse of that era, which yes. is really what it was. Well, if you look at the way that punk broke up disco and it broke up all the prog, yeah. all the prog stuff from the 70s, it was just a rejection of it. I think grunge yeah. was a rejection of anything which wasn't organic. And I mean, when I, yeah. I don't mean organic in terms of writing, but in terms of the sounds produced, you know. Grunge was yeah. mm. guitar, bass, drums, and that's it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think there's another thing, if I may, just, just add into that, because that's true. That's musically what was happening and what yeah. was changing. Yeah. we got to remember Soul to Soul had had, you know, yeah. Back to Life as a hit. There was a very different sound. They were using emerging. breakbeats, weren't they, I suppose, early. They early were, on, yeah. yeah. The, whole, the whole Bristol thing, Massive yeah. Attack, was yeah. beginning yeah. to happen. And um, I think that there was one other thing. The record labels were being sold right. from under all of our feet. They were being taken over by multinational corporations mm. at, who had a very different agenda. I mean, as much as I have my issues with 
you know, my, my differences with Virgin Records at that time. They still signed us mm. and they still <laughs> promoted us and we still did what we did. But when Virgin eventually got taken over by EMI and then EMI by Universal, it was over. You know, the, the mm. music business as we knew it had changed beyond recognition. So this is why I say that I think it was a timing issue. I think we, yep. we were very fortunate and yet unfortunate yep. with our timing. Maybe a year yeah. or two yeah. earlier you would have carried on for longer. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got a little section we, with a snappy title. Um, we like to call it What People Are Saying About Your Song Below the Video and the YouTube Comments Section. I think it's a nice snappy title. Uh, <laughs> it's got a rig. It's very concise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just yeah. thought I'd read some comments out to you and see your reaction because it's been viewed 27 million times, the, uh, the UK version of the song. Um, yeah. And here are some of the My more... mum watches YouTube a lot. Yeah, yeah 27 actually, so. million times. Exactly. Well, everyone's locked down now. That's all people are doing is watching your video. But, uh, but here are some of the more recent comments. So Anthony writes, 2020, and it still sounds so good. Misty Muck. 2020, and I'm still jamming this. Um, this is an interesting mm. one. IG Aquarius. This is from a few months back. I'm Japanese, and I still remember when I first listened to this song from the radio in 87. I was 14 years old then. To me, this song's intro and BV's atmosphere reminds me that the 80s mood. Every time I hear this song, it brings me back to those innocent days. Nice. Oliver. Mm. This reminds me of my relationship with my brother. What a terrible person. Take me back to the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, top of war. Uh, oh, this is one we were talking about earlier. Adam says, In this song, the bongos and tambourines are Roland D50 internal patch D50 voices. Mixed stroke double with the Roland D50 custom patch square voices that were heard. In this song, edited Yamaha DX7 sound sources, Rob 128B patch, slow bells, and Yamaha DX7 internal patch. He does then say Lin 9000, Lin drum were heard, but... He's gone quite deep yeah, there, no, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, it, and there, it, there was a DX7 involved at moments, but no, right. he's... But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think 90% of, um, well, let's say, to be kind, 88% of the, the comments there, I'm sure were given very um, generously, but they're all bullshit, aren't they? <laughs> wow. <It's> just... <laughs> well, this Do is you know yeah. what I find one which I think is very prescient, which is... Uh, Traflas construction from three days ago. So it's a very new comment. It just says, "Now you've given me, given me nothing but childer dreams, childer dreams." I'm not quite yeah. sure what he's hearing, but apparently that's uh, a thing. Yeah. I love a chowder myself. I, I do really too. Do I was thinking that. that it made me quite hungry. Actually, yeah, yeah. maybe that's <laughs> the point. I don't know. I, I what yeah. I find interesting is um, how people remember music of that time, yeah. and, and it's no different really from the seventies or sixties or fifties, but. But because there is a certain 80s influence happening at the moment, it it makes you wonder how people hear it now who weren't around then. Mm. So, for example, if we, you know, there's bands like FM84 and The Midnight who were very, you know, U US actually one British, one US, and they're very 80s oriented, but they're like, they kind of sound more like Michael Sambello or, you know, stuff mm. out of Flashdance and... That's okay because uh, they're from the States by and large. Yeah. But um, there's another guy called Scandroid. And it's mm. really good music, this stuff. But it's almost, it's, an, it's like the 1975. People say, oh, 75, totally 80s. They don't sound 80s right. at all to me. But, but it's more their impression of, mm. of how yeah. they see it now from this point in time, which is different than when we were in it. So, for example, the, the, the Japanese person saying, 
they remember certain things that take them back to the 80s, the BVs or the intro. I mean, it's really interesting, but that's very personal to them in the year 2020. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I think back on it, uh, like Phil, you were talking about the snare drum. Absolutely. We all go, oh, bloody hell, yeah. the snare drum. Yeah. But, but, but there's a different impression now. And I do think that when people talk about 80s influence, someone said to me the other day, Someone that should remain nameless said, oh, the 80s are big right now. They're big, they're big, you know, because there's like two records that have a bit of, you know, 80s, yeah. you know, do a lipper and uh, and uh, the weekend. But it, to me, it's it's not. It's just, it's a it's a, perhaps a reinvention. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You could say that. But uh, it, so for the, those, those comments are really interesting because it's from the perspective now rather than the perspective then. And what's nice is that there's more, positive ones and negative ones, except for the Chowder one, which could go either way. Could go either way. I mean, I think actually yeah. what's interesting is things sound, the 80s stuff sounds better now than it used to because when we were growing up, you'd watch Top of the Pops on a crappy mono TV uh, with a little speaker built inside it, whereas now, and you know, that's what people heard. And the radio might yeah. be a transistor, you know, a portable transistor with four batteries in it and you're, you know, that you've taken across the hallway or a crappy car radio with no bass whatsoever. Whereas now, you know, even basic, you know, headphones that come with your phone are decent enough to give you a good soundscape. And you're generally listening to, to a digital file, which has been uploaded, hopefully from a decent master on Spotify, or whatever. So you're actually hearing it how it was probably intended, which many people well, certainly I didn't at the time. I always used to think the 80s were muffled. And it's only now that you Did listen you? sort of 30 years later that they're not, you know. <laughs> that is, wow. That's amazing. That's an amazing I, observation, Tim, really, yeah. because... In uh, Phil, you'd have a very clear take on this with your production background, but um, yeah. to me, mostly when we worked on records, we spent fucking ages on yep. them. And obviously, the the path was generally all analog, and that was changing, of course, you know, with the advent of digital machines. But um, and so I I, I kind of think that sonically, the bar was at its highest. I think what's interesting. Tim, again, that that's about my privileged position from being mm. within a studio. You're right; the way people heard it, yeah, was yeah. was kind of a bit weird. You know, cassettes were still quite big then, and Absolutely. they sounded awful. So they had a vibe, but they still sounded awful. Sure. Uh, when I when when I was engineering records uh, in the early '80s, but we used to crank so much high end onto everything because you knew by the time it got to the mastering room. So- Somehow it had been polished off. So uh, does that sound weird? Um, <laughs> no. Well, that, but, that one um, does, yeah. But certainly uh, it's odd that Tim remembers 80s records as being muffled because I remember them as being, um, you know, like very high mid-range, yeah, qu- quite trebly. That's, re- that's a very interesting perspective. It makes a lot of sense. It, mm. is, a, it is about the environment in which... Um, you hear something at yeah. that moment in time and what the technology was to create that environment. So I think, I think we can all agree that we're all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the new album, because I know on mm-hmm. the new album, Clark, you've you, you, certainly the, your, your um, social issues, uh, lyrics containing themes about social issues are very much to the fore. And I just, just give us a short run through of how um, you know the album's finished and it's ready to be released, and yeah, just give us some news about your new record. Well, the, the, so the new album is called Wide Awake, and uh, the first single is going to be coming out 
I guess mid-May. It's a really yeah. weird time to put a first single out because yeah. everyone is, you know, tours are getting cancelled to the end of the year sure. or the beginning of next year. Same with, you know, the big acts with their singles and albums. So we just thought, you know what, the 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 album is, you know, full of social commentary about really hoping for a better world. And mm-hmm. um, but but some of the things we we deal with in a more pointed way than others. So it seemed like in this lockdown moment, it was the right time to try something. So we'll see what happens. But the, what was interesting about how this album came together was it started with a song called Spirit of Love, which is the first single. And I had the basic idea for Spirit of Love about two years before we did it. So I had the chorus and I had, a, and I had a semblance of the verse. I didn't have a bridge. This is very interesting. Couldn't get the bridge right. And so it just hung around. You know, I'd play it occasionally to, to people and it would they, they just go blank. Then we start, me and Mike started writing with Phil for, for a new album. And we'd done a couple of days working on something else. And then Phil sent me, or sent Mike, and then Mike sent me, a, a backing track he had, he had done pretty much complete. Didn't have a melody, didn't have words. It was something I, don't, I think that didn't make it on Astral Drive. Am I right, Phil? Yeah, yeah. It was, I loved the track, and I just couldn't think of a melody or, or lyrics or, that, would, that, that took it to where I felt like the, the music was suggesting it was going so good for us that we collaborated yeah yeah so i'm sitting in the car listening to phil's backing track and thinking and i and i really loved the astral drive album and i loved yeah. your the sentiment you wanted to get across phil which is very similar maybe i articulated ourselves slightly differently at times but that's natural isn't it but i yeah. like the fact that you were very much singing about world issues and a, and a very positive uplifting message so I was singing, I was listening to this track in the car and I just started singing Spirit of Love, the chorus over it. And it was like, oh, it this is it. This yeah. is it. It works. It's a Frankenstein moment. It works. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and uh, so the next time we all gathered, I said, yeah. you know, I think, I think we've got something here. So I sang what I had of Spirit of Love. You and Mike immediately responded by, I remember you came up very quickly, Phil, with a bridge, yeah. which was like, that's it. That's it. And then, yeah, it was, it was and a- then the, when I sang the chorus, you had heard the way, where the chorus started as being earlier than where I had heard it start. So when we get, I can't really get into this too much, but when, you know, because you, no one's heard the record, but, but where you heard the chorus start is now where the backing vocals start. Yeah. Singing basically the chorus. Yeah. And I start like, you know, a bar later in the place yeah. I heard it start. Yeah, my, and it my... just, no, it's just, it just all came together. Very, 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 very quickly. And me and Mike, I remember we, we were both like, no, 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 no. The melody should start here. <laughs> like two, yeah, two yeah, bars yeah. and which ended up becoming a background vocal thing. And um, yeah, it was a lovely moment because it was, it was, it was just one of those great musical moments where, Oh. You're all you're all on the same page, and and yep. and you go in the in a matter of uh, maybe half an hour or an hour. You, we're uh, you know we're writing lyrics and and just thinking, 
this is sounding pretty good. It's got yeah, a very, yeah. Tim, it's got a very kind of Isley Brothers feel to it. Oh, nice. You know, okay. um, you know it's it, um, n- nice rich chords and, oh, cool. and, uh, and, and, and it's a good, yeah, it's got a really nice groove, though I say so. So for the listeners, myself. just remind us the name of the song on the album and when uh, when we're looking at releasing it. The of the the song or the album? Both. So the song is Song is Spirit of Love and Spirit of Love that's coming out mid May, yeah. And then the album I don't know yet. It's like we're the the lockdown situation has made us consider things very differently. So it might come very soon after. We'll see. The album's called Wide Awake, though. How exciting. Yeah. Which Wide is, Awake, which is right. another track that we, the three of us collaborated on. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, a, a good, really good one as well. I think that the thing was, was that I had been talking to Mike for a few years saying, you know what, if we're going to do another album, let's just do something that we love. I know it's an easy thing to say, isn't it? Artists always say this. I just wanted to do something I love. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then you hear it and it's shit. Um, but actually, what it was more a case it was more a case of of hearkening back to the music we grew up listening to, which was very much right. Um, you know, seventies R and B, quite cordy, yeah, quite cordy, yeah, yeah. And because Phil had done Astral Drive, which in its own way tapped into that realm, um, mm. yeah, you know, yeah. we we kind of it was like this very interesting meeting point. Where yeah. the, the album, weirdly, when we finished it, you know, Mike would often say, God, you know, what are people going to think? It just doesn't sound like Johnny Ace Jazz. And the few people who heard it always wrote back to us saying, it's great to hear you guys sounding just like Johnny Hates Jazz as yeah. ever. <laughs> thinking, what? It, it's, as long as you're, as I think, as long as you're singing it and you're singing about the themes you like, it's going to sound, that is the, that's the sound yeah, that's of very, Johnny That's Hates true, jazz. though. I mean, yeah. Whenever I write a song, which I think is a massive departure for myself, mm. and I'll be like, oh, this doesn't sound any, anything like me, guys. I'll play it to one of my friends and be like, it's like everything you yeah. always do. And I think, what? <laughs> I'm just completely it's done so something interesting, different. isn't it? How did that happen? It's, 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 a, it's, it's a vocal thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a vocal thing. Yeah, yeah, probably. But, agree, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's got a lot to say. Wide Awake has a lot to say. There's a, um, you know, talking about all manner of things, whether that's environment or just general state of the world. And... Uh, and and as well as some other songs on there, which are, you know, not as specific as that, but I think it works really well. And uh, I mean, you strike me like you don't believe that everything's going really smoothly at the moment. Though. You mean with with us? <laughs> oh, with the world? Maybe it's a slight overreaction. <laughs> Phil, thank you. Tim, thanks very much. See you soon. Yeah. All right. Bye.